nine students and faculty members from Taylor University. They were on a van when it collided with an 18-wheeler on April 26th of 2006. Whitney was one of five on the van that were pronounced dead at the scene. Laura was taken to a hospital in critical condition, unable to communicate, in fact, unable to for some time. For some five weeks, her family sat by her bed and tried to hope for the best and take care of her every need as best they could. Gradually over time, she began to recover, began to be able to speak again, but she could not remember basically anything about the events surrounding the wreck. But the family began to notice some differences about her. And as they noticed those day after day, finally one day, Laura's older sister, Lisa, simply asked the young lady in the bed, What's your name? And she responded, Whitney. For five weeks, they had been sitting by the bed of what they thought was their daughter, only to learn that it was a case of mistaken identity. And so instantaneously, a family that had been clinging to hope that their daughter was going to survive finds out that another family five weeks before had buried and wept over the grave of their daughter. I cannot begin to imagine the pain and struggle those two families felt, all because of mistaken identity. What I wanted to do today is I want us to think about come to the mountain. We're looking at mountains in the ministry of Jesus. And we looked in Bible class at the mountain of temptation where the truth that Jesus is the Son of God was tested. If we we looked in that study at Luke chapter 3 and at Luke chapter 4, what I'd like us to do at this time is I'd like us to look at Mark 8 and 9. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're often called the synoptic gospels because they have the most in common. 92% of John is not found in any of these other three gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the most alike. And you'll find in those books that there are two key things that are transitional moments in the books. They are the confession of Peter and then the Mount of Transfiguration. They're talked about in Mark chapters 8 and 9, in Matthew chapters 16 and 17, and in Luke chapter 9, and in each account, one is on the heels of the other. And you'll find in each of those Gospels, after Peter's confession and after the mountain of transfiguration, you have this increasing discussion and this increasing focus on Jesus suffering, Jesus going to the cross, Jesus dying for our sins. So I talked about earlier that we looked at the mountain of temptation. What I'd like to do is take a moment and talk about the mountain of transfiguration. The biblical bullseye we looked at at the Bible class is the testing of the truth. What I'd like to look at as we study together now is see him to see me. If we start off in Mark chapter 8 around verse 27, we find that Jesus is in the region of Caesarea Philippi. This is a region up north of the Sea of Galilee. 
If we can pull up our map here, you'll see a yellow dot up there by Caesarea Philippi, up there north of the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is this body of water. It basically looks like an upside-down pear. It's about seven miles, seven and a half wide at its widest point, about 13 miles long. Caesarea Philippi was in the region ruled by Herod Philip. Now, we know also, or you may know, Herod Antipas and Herod Archelaus. They were the more evil brothers of Philippi. Philip, Philip was a much more just ruler. Also, the region of Caesarea Philippi was a place largely populated by non-Jews. Remember, at this point in his ministry, first of all, the, the mountain of temptation we looked at was at the beginning of his ministry. We're now looking at a mountain that's nearer the end of his ministry. And if we read through the Gospels, we'll find that in many circles, Jesus is a wanted man at this point in his ministry. And he's got stalkers, disciples of the Pharisees and scribes, that are following him basically everywhere he goes. So by going up into Caesarea Philippi, where he's going to be under the, the rulership of the more just of the Herods, and a region that is largely populated by non-Jews, it would have been the one or one of the safe places where he and his disciples could gather to talk where he would not be a wanted man. Now, while they were there at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked a question. He says, basically, what are people saying about me? What's, what's the gossip mill producing? Who do they say that I am? They give some answers. Some think he's John the Mercer, who's come back to life. Some think he's Elijah. Some think he's one of the prophets who have come back to life. But Jesus isn't so concerned with what the the populace says about him, he wants to know if his followers get it. You see, there was a real problem among the followers of Jesus and even his own apostles to understand his true identity, to really get who he was and what he was all about. And you see that through the Gospels over and over. They struggled to grasp Jesus and he would do something amazing and they would say, well, who is this, for example, that would speak to the winds and the waves? and they would listen. So Jesus is wanting to know if all of these lessons and all of these miracles are sinking in or not. So he says, who do you say that I am? And then you have that powerful statement by Simon Peter, you are the Christ. That word Christ and the sister term Messiah means anointed one. In the Old Testament, the king of Israel was referred to as God's anointed. And so it became a special title among the Jews for their king. As you began to have these prophecies in the Old Testament of one who was a descendant of Judah, Genesis 49, who would raise up the scepter, one who was a descendant of David who would rule forever, Samuel, 2 Samuel and chapter 7. As they began to talk about this great coming king, they simply referred to him as the anointed one, God's anointed. So when, God, when Jesus asked the question, who do you think I am, talking to his own followers, Peter says, well, you're the anointed one. You are the king. You are the sovereign Lord. You are the one that we've been waiting on. Okay, we've got this thing all figured out. They know who Jesus is. They've got it in a nice, neat little box. Jesus is the sovereign king. He is the great king of kings and lord of lords who is going to come and rule forever. 
But just when it seems that they figured out who he is, then Jesus starts saying some very strange things. In verse 31, you have the first of three prophecies about his death that are found in the Gospel of Mark. And with each of those prophecies about his death, you have a story that follows it that makes it evident that the apostles are struggling to get it. Now, what he says in verse 31 would be absolutely shocking to his followers. They firmly believe, the apostles believe, that he was the great king. The problem was their understanding of what the job of the great king was. They were assuming that the great king was going to be a physical earthly king that was going to sit on a throne in Jerusalem, would overthrow the enemies that they had in the first century, that would be Rome. But the Jews believed, by and large, that whenever the Messiah came, he would defeat their enemies and the Jews would rule the world. The, the Jewish nation would rule the world. So when the apostles became followers of Jesus, they thought they were joining the cabinet of the king of the world who was going to conquer the world. You go, you go to Acts chapter 1. I mean, even after his death, burial, and resurrection, they asked Jesus, is now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And so they struggled to understand God's concept of the purpose of the Messiah because they so viewed him as a physical, earthly king. So Jesus comes and says, okay, by the way, I must suffer. I must uh, be taken into custody by and accused by the elders and the chief priests. I'm going to be put to death. Now, I want you to understand, that would absolutely be mind-boggling to the apostles. It might be a little easier for us. We're 2,000 years removed, and we've got the rest of the Bible to help us understand some things. They're in the middle of the story and trying to figure it out, and they don't have all the other pieces that we have of the puzzle to see the full picture. You see, they're just living in the middle of one puzzle piece. We're able to see the puzzle when all the pieces are put in place. And so as Peter hears Jesus talking about dying, he, it's, just, it's beyond his comprehension. And so the text tells us that Peter rebukes Jesus. Now, I just find this crazy. Can you imagine correcting or rebuking the great king and lord of lords? Can you imagine rebuking God? You know, I, I just want you to think about it. I think if I had rebuked my dad growing up, there would be a different preacher standing behind this pulpit this morning. Okay? There are just certain people you don't rebuke, and I cannot begin to imagine rebuking God the Son. But what is also shocking is look at what Jesus says back. Now remember, Peter is one of his closest friends. As we're going to see in chapter 9 of Mark, Peter saw things that nobody else saw. He was a part of an inner circle of three that had a unique closeness to Jesus. When Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before his death, Peter was one of the three that he wanted just a stone's throw away. And yet, Jesus says to this close follower, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, Joseph, I've been called different things in my life, but to my knowledge, now it may have happened behind my back, but to my knowledge, nobody's ever called me Satan. Okay? And so, can you imagine being called Satan 
by the Son of God who's supposed to be one of your best friends. Now here's what's also interesting. You see on the screen I put up there down at the bottom in parentheses Matthew 4.10. You see there is a connection between this story and the story that we looked at in Bible class. In Matthew 4.10, after the last temptation, Jesus tells Satan to depart. The word he uses for go or depart, get, whatever your translation uses, is the word hupage. It just means to go or depart. And so in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus said to Satan, when Satan was tempting him to lose his focus on his mission, Jesus said to Satan, get Satan, go, depart Satan. Here, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus uses the exact same phrase and just adds the descriptive tag behind me. He literally says to Peter the same thing he said to Satan when Satan was tempting him. Go, Satan! Now why would Jesus say that to one of his very best friends? Because in that moment, as Peter is rebuking him and saying, Lord, no, 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 you're not supposed to be that kind of Savior. Lord, you're not supposed to go down a cross. You're supposed to go to a throne and overthrow our enemies. And in that moment, he was doing the same thing Satan did during his temptation. He's trying to derail Jesus from his purpose, from what he came to do. So in that moment, he became a minion of Satan. And so Jesus said, go Satan. And then after that, he basically says to the disciples, you guys have got to make a choice. Because if you're going to follow me, you've got to be willing to take up a cross. And if you're going to follow me, you can't be ashamed of me. Notice what he says down there in verse 37 and 38. He's basically saying, okay, because Peter didn't want a Savior that was going to a cross. He wanted a Savior that was going to wear a crown. And Jesus basically says, you either accept me as I am and you're not ashamed of me or you're not mine. And if you're with me, you've got to accept me as I am. I am a Savior going to a cross. I am a King who's going to die for His people. And if you're going to be mine, you've got to accept me as I am and get in line behind me and take up your cross as well. So yes... He is the sovereign king. But he's also, Jesus makes it clear, a suffering savior, a suffering servant, a suffering king who is going to die for his people. But lest they tend to think that somehow he is weak or somehow he's no longer king, right after he says, you can't be ashamed of me, he then goes back to the subject of kingship at the beginning of Mark chapter 9, by saying there's some of you alive right now that will not die until you see the kingdom come with power. Yes, I'm going to die for my people, but don't misunderstand me. I'm still the king, and the kingdom is coming. I'm just not the kind of king that you were expecting. There was a problem of mistaken identity. Now the scene is going to shift from Caesarea Philippi, and it's going to shift to a very high mountain. Now, there's two candidates for what this mountain might be. 
you look at this particular map, you can see Caesarea Philippi up there is marked by the yellow dot, and just above it, you will see a yellow pyramid, and then down below the Sea of Galilee, you'll see another yellow pyramid. So, the mountain of transfiguration could either be Mount Tabor, which is down here, and this is what that mountain looks like today, so he was either on that mountain, or it was Mount Hermon, which is actually the mountain that is much, much closer to Caesarea Philippi. If you go to Israel today, the tour guides are going to say it happened here. At the end of the day, I don't care which one it happened on, but it's one of those two mountains. This is what the mountain range of Mount Hermon would have looked like. It's actually the closer to the location and is a much more majestic and high mountain. What I'm concerned with is not so much which mountain was on, but what's happening and why. We need to remember what just took place in chapter 8. Remember, Peter has declared, you are the Christ. Now, if we take Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of them, what they say is consistent. There's, there's nothing about any of them that contradicts the other. It's just that some of them give us more detail about what Jesus said than the others. And so when we combine them together, he didn't just say that he is the Christ, but he says, you are the Christ, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so he not only says, you are the sovereign anointed one, he says, you are divine. You are God the Son. It's important to remember, he said that back up in Caesarea Philippi. Now, when he comes to Mount Tabor, Mount Hermon, we're going to see an event take place that emphasizes the truth that Jesus is God the Son. The text tells us he went through a change. Now Mark's account emphasizes a change in his clothing. That there was a brilliance, a whiteness to his clothing that no launderer could equal. You know, all the Clorox in the world, bleach in the world, is not going to get a garment this white. You know, I don't know about you, I remember, and, and I can empathize with some of these young people here. I don't know what it's like for them. I can remember when I was growing up going to worship services, one of the last things I heard before we got out of the cars, now after services, don't get outside and play football and get grass on your knees. And I don't know if any of you heard that speech before, don't play outside and get grass on your dress pants because you can't get grass stains out of your dress pants. He said there is no launderer that could duplicate the brilliance of his clothing. But we also know, we look at Mark and Luke and Matthew's account together, we find, for example, in Luke, it doesn't so much just emphasizes the brilliance of his clothing, but rather the brilliance of his person. That there was literally a glow, if you will, about Jesus. That his flesh had a brilliance about it, not just his clothing. And as you think about the appearance of his face going through a transformation, I want you to see another connection here to Moses. Remember I talked about in Bible class, how you have all these connections in the Gospels between Jesus and Moses. If we go to Exodus chapter 34, when Moses goes up on the mountain to get the second giving of the Ten Commandments, the text says when he came down, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone. In other words, when he came down from the mountain after spending 40 days in the presence of God, he, he had a glow about him 
that was actually terrifying to the people. Why did he have a glow about him? You'll find in Scripture that God and divinity, they are consistently represented by fire and light. That he is described as the one, Paul says, who dwells in inapproachable light. And so when he was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, he was in a fiery pillar by night. When he came down upon Mount Sinai, the mountain exploded and fire billowed up. When he talked to Moses, it was in a burning bush. When the Holy Spirit came on the apostles on the day of Pentecost, it was in white cloven tongues of fire. Consistently in Scripture, God is pictured as fire and light. And so Moses had a glow about him because he had been in the presence of the one who dwells in an inapproachable light. He was overwhelmed by the brightness of God. But with Moses, it would dissipate. It's like that glow-in-the-dark frisbee I have that I kept in my office for years. Okay, I could have, when I turned out the light, if I left the office at night, there was always this round glow from that glow-in-the-dark frisbee. But you know what happened to that frisbee the longer it was away from the light? It would dissipate. And that's exactly what would happen to Moses' face. So what does that have to do with Jesus? They were seeing the divine Jesus. They were seeing the fire and the light. They were seeing a glimpse of what he gave up to become a human being. The text says in two of the three Gospels that he was transfigured. It's the word metamorpho, from which we get our word metamorphosis. Now, I don't know if any of you grew up on superheroes. I did, and I was a, I was a big Hulk fan when I was growing up. There was this guy named Lou Ferrigno back when I was in high school. Had a TV show called The Incredible Hulk. Now here's why I mention that to you. He would go through a metamorphosis. You have this mild manner, David Bruce Banner, who has an overexposure to gamma radiation, who when he becomes angry goes from this mild-mannered white lab coat scientist and he turns into this hulking you know, seven-foot green monster who has these amazing stretchy pants that no matter what happens, they never fall off, and I'm glad they didn't. But the point is, the Hulk didn't look anything like David Bruce Banner. It's what we see down at our pond when a tadpole turns into a frog. It's what happens in that cocoon on the trees when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. It's what happens in my beehives when a seed is planted in one of those cells and then it's capped and eventually after 21 days a worker bee comes out. That's called a metamorphosis. And what comes out is radically different from what went in. The point I'm trying to make is when it says Jesus was transfigured, I don't want you to picture just, a, oh wow, he really got his clothes clean today. That's kind of white. He is saying that there is a brilliance, a metamorphosis, a radical transformation. You see, they had been walking and talking for three years with Jesus the man. And what Jesus is reminding them is that, yes, he's a man, but he's also the eternal Logos. He is also God the Son. He is saying to them, you are in the presence of God. Have you ever seen something amazing and you just thought, well, somebody's got to say something. You're standing and looking at the Grand Canyon or or the Taj Mahal or Machu Picchu in the mountains of Peru and you say, somebody must say something. 
Well, Peter was like that all the time. The problem is he always felt he needed to have something to say, whether or not he had something to say. And so he felt like somebody should say something. They're scared to death, but this is a big deal. You're seeing Jesus as God the Son. And so he said, uh, let's build three tents and let's honor all three of them. We've got Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Now Moses and Elijah were there upon the mountain with Jesus. Why might they have been there? If you go back to John chapter 1, you remember when Philip goes and gets his friend Nathaniel? He says, we have found the one that Moses in the law and also the prophets spoke about, Jesus of Nazareth. You see, the prophets of the Old Testament and Moses in the writing of the law had foreshadowed the coming of Jesus. And so Moses representing the, the law and Elijah representing the prophets now stand on either side of Jesus. I think the imagery would have been crystal clear to these men because they grew up on the Scriptures. The Scriptures that said that Moses and the prophets pointed people to Jesus. The text says they're carrying on a conversation with Jesus about something that's going to happen in Jerusalem. And remember also, I talked about at the Bible class hour, this focus in Luke on going up to Jerusalem. That The whole book of Luke is a build up to Jerusalem. Chapter 9, chapter 13, chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 19. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and often it would talk about he set his mind to go to Jerusalem when geographically he was going in a different direction. It wasn't talking about where he was pointed on a map. It's talking about where he was pointed in his life purpose. His plan and his mission is to get to Jerusalem. Sometimes he may go in this direction or that direction, but his goal through his whole life was to get to Jerusalem. And so you have this amazing conversation between Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Remember how I talked about that many of the people around Jesus didn't get it and God often had to send someone from the next world to talk to him. And so they talked about his departure which was about to be accomplished in Jerusalem. It's a reminder of all that he left and that Jesus is not only on the doorstep of accomplishing what he came to do, Jesus is on the doorstep of going back home. I would give anything to have been a fly on a rock and heard what they talked about in that Peter and the apostles were so overwhelmed by everything that happened that Peter felt something had to be said. Look at verse 6. He did not know what to say. They were scared. They were afraid. And so when he says, hey, let, let's build three tents and, and let's honor all three of them. Let's have a special festival or something for all three of them. He literally didn't know what he was saying. In fact, if you look in Luke's count, it says that down in verse 33, and that may be one of the great understatements of all time. I recall this summer I was speaking in Henderson, Kentucky, and I had gotten on 24 there in Nashville and was cutting across 24 before I headed north up to Henderson, Kentucky. And I remember as I'm driving down that four-lane interstate, out in front of me, I see these dark, swirling clouds. I mean, it is an awful storm. It's one of those where you can see lightning streaking down in front of you. And I'm thinking to myself, I've got to go into that. I wonder if somebody else can preach in Henderson, Kentucky tonight. And I remember driving into that storm, and it was like the heavens just dropped. It was like they just opened up and emptied everything out. I want you to imagine that you're standing on the top of this mountains in the presence of a glowing God the Son. And then suddenly the sky grows dark. 
and this dark, billowing cloud comes down, and you find yourself shrouded in darkness, and all you can see is the glowing God the Son. And out of the darkness, God says, this is my Son. You see, God is making a statement. You see, Peter said, okay, let's, let's honor all three of them. And God says, wait just a minute. There may be three individuals on this mountain, but there's only one Son of God on this mountain. The only one you need to listen to is the only one that's my Son. You listen to Him. And what's beautiful then is in the aftermath of that, the text says, poof, Moses and Elijah are gone, the, the cloud is gone, and all that's left is Jesus. Because all that should be left is Jesus. There should be only one God on the mountain of our hearts. And that's the message God wanted to get across to them. There is no comparison between Moses and Elijah and God the Son. They are not on the equal plane, they're not on the same playing field. The cloud dissipated, and there was only one left. He's sovereign king. He's the suffering savior. He's the son of God. But you know, anytime you have a mountaintop experience, you eventually have to come down off of the mountain. And so they came down off of the mountain. As they came down off the mountain, Jesus told them not to talk about what they had seen. He talked about waiting until after He raised from the dead. They then began to talk among themselves about, what? What do you mean raising from the dead? Because they still didn't get it. They said, you know, Malachi says that Elijah is going to come first, basically before the Messiah. And he says, well, Elijah did come. And they did to him whatever they wanted to do. The point he's making is, at some point, you've got to come off of those mountaintop experiences back to the real world, and it's not always easy in the real world. He said, Elijah, and he's talking about John the Immerser, he said, John the Immerser was the Elijah. He's the one who prepared the way for me. And they killed him. They did whatever they wanted to. And so Jesus is saying, yes, I am sovereign. Yes, I am Savior. Yes, I am Son of God. But if you follow me, they're probably going to do the same thing to you. Because you're not like them. If we see who Jesus really is, then we see who we are. If we realize that Jesus is sovereign, then we realize that if we make Him Lord in this life, if we'll express our faith in Him in repentance, confession, and baptism, then we shall be glorified with Him. We'll share in what Paul describes as His triumphant procession. If we understand that He's a suffering Savior, then we understand that becoming a Christian doesn't mean we join a country club. It means that we become followers of a Savior who went to the cross to save, and that if we follow Him, we must be willing to take up our crosses as well. If we understand that He is the Son of God, then that means that He is the only one we'll listen to. That He is the only one we will follow. Think of all the pain that happened because of two families' mistaken identity. 
And so many people have suffered loss because they didn't understand who Jesus was. We like a Jesus we can put in a box. And so, yeah, he's a king, I got that. No, he's a savior, yeah, I've got that. No, he's the son of God, I got that. And what we've got to realize is Jesus doesn't fit into any of our boxes. If we try to make him fit into what feels comfortable to us, our job is not to conform Jesus to a savior we want. Our job is to conform ourselves to the savior as he is. And it's time we decided how many gods have we got on our mountain. Have we got somebody else that's Lord of our life, somebody else that is influencing us and controlling us that is not God the Son. As we sing this invitation song, if there is anyone else but Jesus on the mountain of your heart, then I pray you'll come. We've already been told there's two elders ready to talk. And let's see what we can do to make sure there's only one God, the God of the mountain. Won't you come as we stand and sing?